0: Christians have been celebrating uh, Good Friday for 2,000 years, and you know what we have in common with them? They didn't have slides either, so we're in good company, guys. All right, so my name is Kale. I'm the youth pastor here, and I know, I know, usually I come up here and I bring you into, you know, uh, some kind of like acting thing where I kind of bring you into the system and kind of so try to show you what did it look like to walk with Jesus? What might the story have looked like if we were walking in the Israelite shoes? Today, you just get me. <laughs> you get me, but... I do get to have good news for you. We're starting off tonight with a pop quiz. Now, I don't get to show you the answers on the screen, so I'm gonna read you from my slides here (laughs) uh, four different quotes, and I want you to try to figure out, just listen to what I'm saying, and try to figure out what these four quotes have in common. You ready? First quote, money can't buy life. This is Bob Marley in 1981. Probably weren't expecting this to start off Good Friday with a Bob Marley quote, right? Second quote, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality that it should have. This is Leonardo da Vinci in 1519. Quote three, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot by Harriet Tubman, 1913. And the last quote, are you guys ready? Let's roll. This is Todd Beamer in 2001. Anyone have any ideas? This is, a, this is interaction part, part. Does anyone have any ideas what's in common with those four quotes? These were all famous last words from these people. So these are the final lines of these people, the, the words that were credited with them before they died. There you go. Amen. Which, when you start to think about it, that gives them extra significance, doesn't it? Right? Like, when you look at Bob Marley's quote, uh, it kind of is actually kind of a profound statement about life. It's that life isn't about material possessions. There's actually something more. Thanks, Bob. When you look at Leonardo da Vinci's, it's actually a little sadder when you start to think about it, because you're like, wow, clearly he thought he had a potential that he never reached, and he was kind of hard on himself about it. Harriet Tubman, she was an abolitionist, a conductor on the Underground Railroad, and she saved uh, countless slaves, African-American slaves, and freed them from slavery. But she was also a Christian. And so in her final moments, she chose these words from, from this worship song because she knew she would find ultimate freedom in the arms of her Savior. And lastly, Todd Beamer, he was an American hero, He led on a group of passengers of United 93 in September 11th, 2001 in the plane that didn't find its mark. He led on this group of passengers to take on the terrorists and they grounded that plane 20 minutes outside of Washington, D.C., saving countless lives. His words were courageous in a time that would have petrified most of us. You see, in all four of these quotes, really the placement of these words matters almost more than the words themselves, Right? Like it showed what these people truly had down deep into their core, what they really believed, what they valued most in those final moments, which is probably why our gospel writers spent so much time in their gospel, so much of their writing space dedicated to the last week of Jesus's life. See, every word he spoke that week, it truly mattered, And it mattered more because he knew what was coming. He chose his words deliberately, and clearly the disciples, they were listening because though Jesus did teach for three full years, the gospel writers dedicate huge chunks of their scriptures to the last week of his life. You know, Christmas is great, and so I don't want to, I'm not naysaying to Christmas, but in reality, Matthew and Luke, well, they dedicate about two chapters of their gospel to the birth narrative, and Mark and John, well, they don't really talk about it at all. Okay, well, I, to clarify, I did give John one line there, because in John 1.14, he says the word became flesh. And so if you want to call that a birth narrative, well, there you go. It's up there. But Mark and John, really, they don't, they don't talk about Jesus' birth very much. On the contrary to Easter, well, in Easter, Luke, he gives the whole uh, first quarter of his gospel. I think I have another slide for this one. First a whole quarter of his gospel to the last week of Jesus's life. Here, I got a I clicker. I forgot it down here, so I'm going to grab it. There we go. Last quarter of his gospel was dedicated to this final week of his life. Matthew Mark, they gave a third of his, their gospels to the final week of Jesus's life. And John gave a whopping one half of his gospel dedicated to this final week of Jesus's life. Now, the reality is, I think we remember Christmas a whole lot better because there's a lot more tradition surrounding it, lights and carols and trees and stockings. But Easter, it somehow just kind of sneaks up on us every year, doesn't it? Yet, yeah, if we're being honest, I think we're just kind of forgetful people in general, right? Right? Like, how many of you have had this happen to you where, where you sit down to watch a show? You know, you, you grab your remote and you, you turn off, or you turn the TV and, and uh, you turn it on and you get to something that, uh, that you want to see on TV and you set down the remote for a good amount of time, you know, 15, 30 seconds, <laughs> and then you reach down to grab that remote again because you're like, I've got to turn up the volume or something, and... and <laughs> Where'd it go? You know you say you can't find the remote that you just sat down. And so you stand up, you pick take off the couch cushions, you take off the blanket, whatever, and all of a sudden it goes flying across the room and the batteries fly out or whatever. How many of you is, does this happen to any of you? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I see a lot more men's head heads nodding on this one. That's okay. We're pretty forgetful people, aren't we? Yet this week, this week is the most important week of human history, both for the Jewish people and Christians alike. And it's always been about remembering what God has already done, or in this case, for Jesus' case, what God's about to do. So tonight, we're going to take a look at some of Jesus' final words, the words that he chose, specifically a story where Jesus tells us that this is worth remembering. But before we do that, uh, I just want to pray over this time, so why don't you guys bow your heads with me? God, I pray that you would give me words to speak, um, but God, I pray that you would give us all ears to hear whatever it is that you want to speak to us today. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So tonight, we are going to be looking at a story in Luke, tw- uh, Luke 22. Now, leading up to this scene uh, in, in this story, I'm going to tell you what's been going on. You see, Jesus has been stirring up quite the riot in Jerusalem. He's been driving out teachers in the temple with a whip. He's been flipping over tables. He's been talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. He's been pronouncing all these woes and warnings over the religious leaders of the day. He's been calling out hypocrites. This whole time, he's been calling himself the Messiah, the king who's going to rescue Israel. And meanwhile, he's also calling himself God himself. And in the meantime, he's garnering or gathering crowds with him everywhere he goes, which is garnering tons of attention. And, and not everyone's happy about it, right? Like, it is, it's creating riots in the streets. This is crazy. It's almost as if Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Like as if he was taking the stick and he was beating the bush head on because he wanted the beast to come out and strike. He wanted the snake to slither on out. Spoiler alert. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. So let's take a look. We're going to read Luke 22. I'm going to read 7 and 8. We're going to put the verses on the screen. You can follow along in whatever translation you have, um, but we're going to be reading from NIV. Verse 7. Then came the day of the unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go make the preparations for us to eat the Passover. Remember when I said that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing? Well, here's kind of why. See, he chose Passover, which was the most important Jewish holiday. It still is, actually. And he chose this holiday to be his final week. Well, Passover. What is Passover, you might ask? Well, in short, uh, it's the retelling of Israel's freedom story. It's basically their New Year's, their Thanksgiving, and their Fourth of July all rolled into one massive holiday. And it was a really big deal. We're actually going to talk a little bit more about it in a bit but right now, Jesus is saying, come on, guys. Hey, let's go eat It's Passover. And he's really eager about it. He'll actually tell us that in a little bit. Verse 9. Uh, where, where do you want us to prepare for it, they ask. Now, before I read you verse 10, uh, I just want to tell you how awesome Jesus is in this moment because he absolutely sounds like the British Secret Service talking to James Bond. Uh, so check it out. Verse 10 with me. Jesus replied, As you, as you enter into the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where's the guest room? That I may eat the Passover with my disciples. He will show you to a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. I await wait, your next mission. No, okay, okay, I added that last line, right? And, and the glasses and the, and the tone. But you see, like, he even gives them a code phrase. He's like, when you see this guy, tell him these words and it'll be all ready for him. But remember, Jesus, he's been beating the bush, right? He's waiting for the snake to come out and strike. But he's not quite ready for that to happen yet. And so he's kind of got to go all secret agent man on him. Like, he's got to be cautious. Let's read verse 13. So they left and uh, things, and they found things just as Jesus had told them. And so they prepared the Passover. So here's where we uh, need to talk about the Passover. So remember when I said the Passover is like New Year's and Thanksgiving and the 4th of July all rolled into one holiday? Well, that's because for one, for Jewish people, uh, the New Year started right after the Passover. And for two, the Passover was all about this big feast that you would have. And then number three, it was all structured around remembering this Jewish freedom story about how they had been given freedom. So what is that story, you might ask? Well, about 1,400 years before Jesus was born, God miraculously saved Israel, and they saved him from slavery in Egypt. See, this evil Egyptian pharaoh had been using them uh, all as free labor to build up his own kingdom. This guy was a bad dude, Pharaoh. He was so evil. He was he was so evil that he had no problem committing genocide, murdering an entire uh, an entire generation of men just so he could curb the population growth. He was killing babies, actually. Not men, he was killing babies just to curb their population growth. He was he was a seriously bad dude. And so God, he heard the Israelites' cries and he sent a man named Moses to demand Pharaoh to let my people go. But Pharaoh said, "No way, dude! Like, go fly a kite. Like, these these are my people. I'm gonna use them to build up my own my own kingdom. I'm I'm not letting them go." And so God was left with no choice but to uh, give Pharaoh some really serious warnings and uh, tried to give him opportunity after opportunity to change his mind. And time after time, wave after wave, God would send these plagues as warnings to get Pharaoh to release the Israelites. It was from from dead fish to frogs to bugs and to boils on your face. Like, the story is all over the place. And, And increasingly, these warnings, they become more and more and more severe until finally he says, all right, you know what, you know what? This all started with you killing Israel's sons, Well, if you don't let my firstborn go, referring to Israel as a whole, he says, if you don't let my firstborn go, I'm going to take yours. And so the final plague, it was was really awful. It was really bad. See, every firstborn male child of every family would die. But, but there was a way out. You see, a family could sacrifice a lamb, and somehow the sacrifice of this lamb, it would cover the cost of the child. And so the family would take this hyssop branch. I have a branch right here, actually. And they would take this branch, and they would paint the top of their doorway. And what this would do is it would create a symbol. It would say that the cost had been paid. And so then when God's angel of death would go through the land to take these, the firstborn, it would pass over that home, hence where we get the name Passover. And so the Jewish people, they obeyed, and, and their children were saved, but Pharaoh... Well, Pharaoh, in his grief, after finally losing his son, he said, All right, go. Get out of here. I don't want you anymore. Go. And it was the end of slavery for the Israelites and the new beginning for the Jewish people. Now, if you know the story, you know it doesn't end there. In fact, some, uh, some really interesting things happen after, including the parting of the sea and the, and the wandering the wilderness and the, the Ten Commandments. But really, it's this one moment, this Passover moment, that's that's where from this point on, year after year after year, the Israelites would gather around their tables and they would share a meal and they would remember about how they were once slaves, but God had rescued them and brought them into freedom. So there you go. That's the Passover meal. And it was always about remembering what God had done. And Jesus, he chose this meal to be his final one. Let's look at verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. Okay, so now we're, we're about to do something a little different here. I'm actually going to invite some friends up on stage with me. And uh, we're going to have ourselves a little mock Passover meal, okay? So if you guys want to have a seat, so welcome, welcome to my Passover. I oh, hope you're going to take the next seat over, thank you. This is the Jesus uh, seat right here, so... <laughs> So we're going to have ourselves a little Passover. So welcome. Welcome to this table, guys. I'm so glad you're here. Now, in a Passover, a traditional Passover meal, it would be a very long meal. It would probably be one or two hours long, and we don't have that time, so we're going to have a really shortened version of that. Um, But what for any Passover meal, you need a couple different items, a bare minimum of a few items. So if you've ever, had a, if you've ever participated in a Seder meal, which I know a few of you in, in this room have, I've heard some stories already this week, pretty awesome, this is going to be a very shortened smaller version of that. And so that the very bare minimum, you need a couple things. One, you need wine. But I have all minors here, so we're having sparkling grape juice. <laughs> Then, you're going to need three more elements. You need one, you need the pesach, which is the Passover lamb. Real cute, right? Uh, don't get too attached. <laughs> <laughs> you need matzah, which is unleavened bread. And then you need maror, which is a bitter herb. We'll talk more about this later. Like I said, this meal would be usually pretty long, so we're just going to do a short one. But every time you would have this meal, you would have to start with speaking a blessing over it. And so we're actually going to do this together. So I'm going to put the words up on the screen, and we'll read this together. Are right, you ready? Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates fruit from the vine. So now we would take our cup, and we would take our first drink. And just like that, Passover meal had begun. And so then Jesus, he, he turns to his disciples and he says, I've, I've eagerly desired to share this Passover meal with you before I suffer. For I tell you, uh, I will not eat of it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. You see the problem here, Right? See, up to this point, Passover meal has always been about what God has done. Everything from the bread and the cup and the, and the lamb and the maror, everything that we're about to take, it already had meaning. And it was always about what God had done. And now Jesus, while well, he's giving these elements new meaning, he's saying it's not just about what God has done. It's actually about something God is going to do. And somehow it's connected to his suffering, to his death. Then he says he's not going to have a meal like this again until it finds com- fulfillment or completion. It's filled to the full in the kingdom of God. And see, up to this point, Jesus had talked a whole lot about the kingdom. And it was always wrapped up. It was, it was always about God's rule and reign and the promises that came with it. God's promise to, to, to save his people and to bring blessings to the world. And now, well, now he's saying, yeah, 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 yeah. you guys, that's about to happen. That's about to happen. See, the next time we have a me- I have a meal like this, it's going to be complete. What's going on, Jesus? This isn't how we do Passover. See, after taking the first cup, tradition has it that we would eat a little something. And so we would take this little vegetable, uh, we can call it the carpas. You guys can take a carpas right there. And we would dip it into salt water. And we eat it. Why do we eat the carpas? Well, g- great question, Nat. See, in short, it's a spark curiosity. See, in Jewish culture, it was actually a sign of an intelligence for students to ask questions. Not really in our culture, right? We think of intelligence as just kind of knowing everything or being quiet and just listening. You might have thought of Nat as just being interruptive right now, but I planted her here. Right? <laughs> but this was a sign of true intelligence. It's asking. The other reason for dipping the carpas was to start the story, to remember exactly how the Israelites ended up down in slavery in Egypt. See, it all started with this guy named Joseph, who was in a family full of brothers. He had 11 brothers, and, and they sold him out. They tricked him. They sold him into slavery to the Egyptians. And then they took his, his robe, and they dipped it in blood, all to fool their father into thinking that his son had died and to get him to stop asking questions. Now, in a turn of events, the story, it, well, it, uh, uh, Joseph ends up rescuing the entire family, but they all have to end up down in Egypt with him, and so they end up living down in Egypt, and the, this dipping of the carpas in the salt water is meant to trigger that story, that memory of, of that coat being dipped in the blood. And this is why this meal would take so long, by the way, because you had to explain a lot. There was a lot of storytelling, and the leader, me- the leader of the meal would then have to explain, okay, yeah, yeah, so it was only 12 people, but eventually they grew into a whole nation. They just kept multiplying and multiplying and multiplying until they had so many kids and so many people in this people group that the Pharaoh had to start killing off their kids just to curb the population growth. And then you start telling the story about the Passover and about how God heard the cries of the people and and he chose a servant named Moses to rescue them and bring them into freedom. It's the Passover story. But for now, let's uh, let's move on to the dinner by taking of the cup again, the second cup. Are you guys ready? Let's do this again. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit from the vine. Now, after taking the second cup, traditionally, we would go on to the matzah, the unleavened bread. Now, I got a question for you. Does this look like bread to you? No, it's really flat, right? Like, this is, this is really terrible bre- bread. Well, that's what unleavened bread means. It means without yeast. It's, it has no yeast to let it rise. Well, why is that? Well, the reason is it's very, very intentional. See, this was to symbolize how quickly the Israelites had to leave after that final plague. See, they didn't have time to prepare. They didn't have time to wait for the yeast to rise. This is just, this is literally just flour and water. It's like, get food in and get out of here. You got to go quick, you guys. See, the point is, this, this bread, well, it already had meaning to it. It was haste. It was how quickly, it was a symbol for how quickly the Israelites had to follow God into this newfound freedom. But Jesus, well, he does something really peculiar. The next verse reads, Then he took the bread, he gave thanks. We're going to do it again. So if you guys want to read the screen again with me. Oh, 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 next. It's a little different. All right, there we go. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the ground. And he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which has been given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. excuse me, Jesus. What? Like this bread, it, it, it already had meaning to it. It already had meaning to it. It was, it was all about following God and, and quickly into freedom, into the promised land. It was a story about how God delivers his people from slavery. Excuse me, Jesus. What? What are you talking about? We see Jesus. He was saying that the symbol, which was once a symbol of the past and, and what God had, been, had done, it was leading his people out of slavery and into freedom, well, he was now going to do it again. <laughs> He's going to do it now for everyone. And that somehow, somehow this is, was, was going to be fulfilled by Jesus's suffering, by his body being beaten and bloodied and broken. And that's how God is going to rescue his people from slavery. Excuse me, Jesus? What? But he doesn't explain it. After the bread, tradition has it in this meal that we would then move on to the maror, which is the bitter herb. Now, I, I want to be honest with you guys at this table. Uh, this, part, this part stinks. Uh, it's not very fun. <laughs> the point is to make you cry. <laughs> so I'm going to have a little bit of maror to there for each of us. Do you want to flip your yeah. carpas over? There you go. There you go. Now, for everyone in the crowd, enjoy. (laughs) So, are you guys ready? So, you might want to keep your cup handy. You might need something to help bring this one down. So, all right. Cheers. Cheers. Here we go. You guys are handling like champs, I got to (laughs) say. I got a tear, I got a tear, I see, I see some tears. It's working, it's working, all right. Oh, what was the point of that? <laughs> yeah, got, that, of that. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, see, the point of the bitter herb was to participate in a point, a part of, or I'm sorry, in a, in a form of suffering, okay? See, it was to, to see yourselves as the Israelites in slavery. Exodus one fourteen reads this way, it says, they made their lives marar, or bitter, with harsh labor, with brick and mortar and all kinds of work in the fields, and all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked the Israelites ruthlessly. You see, what they did is they made their lives marar, and that's why we take the maror. See it? See, I think that's because the easiest time for us to forget what God has done in our lives is when things are comfortable, right? It's easy to forget what life was like before. Well, the maror, it's a prompt. It's a prompt, an opportunity for each generation of Israelites to consider what life could have been like when without God's rescue. See, Christian Lent uh, repeats this tradition. Lent, at its best, when it's properly practiced, is designed with the same purpose. It's a dedicated symbol, a symbol to prompt us to remember what life could be like without salvation, to participate in a form of suffering. So after we move on from the bitter herb, we would then move on to the main course, the lamb. Now, curiously, uh, Luke, well, he doesn't mention anything about the lamb. And neither does Mark, and neither does Matthew, and neither does John. Now, we can assume they ate it, because in in, uh, Luke's next line, he says they finished dinner together. But they never actually mention anything about the lamb. All the gospel writers skip over the main course. Wait, why is that? Great question, Caleb. Well, see, just like every word in the Gospels is chosen, every single word is intentionally placed there, in this case, in some cases, the absence of words is equally intentional. Because when you know that there's supposed to be a main course and it's not mentioned, you have to start asking, well, well, where's the lamb? And then maybe, just maybe, you start remembering some of the words that John the Baptist spoke And when he saw and he baptized Jesus, what, what what did he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's right. Behold the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. You see, the biblical writers, well, they didn't really need to mention too much about the Lamb at the table because it would have taken away from the fact that the Lamb was present with them the entire time. See, Jesus was the Lamb. Which is why what Jesus says next makes so much sense. Look at verse 20 with me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. Let's do this one more time. Third time. Ready? Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates fruit from the vine. And then he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Why don't you give these students a round of applause and thank you so much for helping You see, these words, they probably don't sound like too much to us. Or maybe just don't sound too surprising to us. Maybe because if we've grown up in the church, you've, you've heard this before. You've heard this line before. Maybe if you've been at Crossview for a while, you've taken communion with us. And you're like, yeah, yeah, I know these words. But to the Israelites, well, the Israelites, this would have been completely shocking. This isn't how we do Passover, remember? Because he's talking about this moment where he's bleeding out. On the cross. Do you know in Jesus' final moments, he says, I'm thirsty. And, the, uh, and the, the, um, the soldiers, they give him a drink. They put a sponge on the end of what? A hyssop branch. And they bring it up. And they put it up to Jesus. And they say, and he says, it is finished. See, Jesus... I mean, this is amazing, you guys. Jesus, not only is he the Passover lamb, not only is his blood the payment, but now you can see he's, he's painting himself as if he's the doorway itself. The doorway to life, the doorway to freedom. Come on, that's so cool. And so in these moments, these moments as, as he's having this last supper, well, he's saying, you know, these, these symbols, these symbols that we're taking, they, they, represent, they represent my incredible love for you that I would live for you, and that I would die for you. This is what the covenant in my blood means. What is a covenant? It's a promise. It's agreement between two parties. And what does is, what is Jesus promise to those who trust in his name? Well, he promises freedom. And he promises his own personal presence. Some of the last words Jesus spoke to his disciples were, and surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. See, Jesus is saying, every time you drink this cup, every time you take this bread, I want you to do something really important. I want you to remember me. I want you to remember my sacrifice. I want you to remember what it cost. But uh, but, but, but don't beat yourself up and feel just terrible about how... Bad you are or something like that. I say, no, that's not the point. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you always. Yes, you were once slaves, but, but now you are free. Don't you get it? Remember my great love for you. See, Good Friday, it exists for us to remember the cost, for what it is for us to be rescued from slavery, for what it took for Jesus to go to that cross, to be the Passover lamb that we ultimately needed. And so then we come to this table, as we come to communion, it was never meant to be taken in vain. We should never be sitting there punishing ourselves with this cosmic-sized guilt about how terrible we are and how awful we are. No, that's never the point. It was meant to be a reminder of what it cost for Jesus to remove you from slavery and into freedom. See, Jesus, he always saw suffering as part of the plan. And he saw us as humans, people who needed rescuing, just like the Israelites. But he never saw humans as the primary enemy. See, John three sixteen. it does not read, let me repeat that again, it does not read, for God so hated the world that he murdered his only son that whomever believes in him would have eternal life. He doesn't read that way, right? We know that, but unfortunately, over time, we've started to internalize it this way. It's like, I'm just this terrible person and God hates me. Good thing he had to kill his kid. no. Oh. That's not the point. No, he loves his creation. But he sees that they're enslaved. See, humans, they aren't the enemies. But there is something else at work. Something else that's weakening our condition. And I think that's why Jesus had no interest in killing the Roman soldiers who nailed him to that cross. What did he say? He said, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. See, he looked at those humans, he looked at everyone around him, and he saw who they were meant to be. He saw that they reflected the image of his father, and he pitied them. Why? Because he saw that they were still in bondage. They were slaves to the powers of this world, bound by sin. See, Paul an apostle who saw his own life as a chance to participate in Jesus' suffering story, he says it this way. He says, For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. Well, what is the law? The law is the Old Testament moralist of commands. And he says, What well, it was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. Well, that means the law wasn't bad in and of itself, right? It was, it was a problematic because we realized we didn't have the power to do this. We weren't given the life spirit to, the, to do this thing. It was weakened by our own flesh. Well, that law, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now, tell me, looking at that verse, who or what was being condemned on the cross that day, according to Paul? Was it Jesus? Was it some cosmic act of child abuse? No. No, I'm sorry. It wasn't Jesus. I'm sorry if I'm about to spoil the ending for you. I'm sorry if I, if you didn't know, but Jesus, he comes off that cross, right? Yeah, he goes to a tomb for a few days, but, but he comes back. Jesus comes back. You know what doesn't come off that cross? Sin itself was condemned on the cross that day and it never left so that you too who trust in the name of Jesus who did come off that cross, who is seated at the right hand of God the Father and whose Holy Spirit now dwells with inside of you, that you too can have freedom from the ultimate effect of sin that is to be separated from God. And you now have the ability, you now have the power of the Holy Spirit to live a new life in freedom. And I'm sorry if I'm stepping on the toes of Resurrection Sunday because this is why the resurrection is so incredible because it gives us hope. It gives us hope in a new life. We are redeemed. We are not our own, but we belong to God, and we have a God who lives inside of us and walks with us in every moment. So that gives us hope, yes, for the future, but also hope for the present, because we can live like Jesus conquered death, because he did. See, the true goal of the Christian life is not merely to say that Jesus is Lord, but to shout it. With our entire lives, because you've been rescued, you've been redeemed. See, the gospel ought never be to simply be about just you and your own salvation, but rather to include God <laughs> and to include what God is doing? Because Jesus, He is alive and He lives inside of us. So we get to be free. We get to live with Jesus daily, and this means we get to spread the kingdom message with every fiber of our being, not just with our words, yes, with our words, but also with our entire lives. This is what it means to to live out the gospel, not merely just to pray some prayer, but rather to participate in a joy, a joy of the good news that Jesus, he is alive, and he is here both now and forevermore. But that is a message for Resurrection Sunday. You see, tonight, tonight we remember exactly what it costs for that kind of freedom. Tonight we do this not to dwell in or wallow in our sinful state and feel bad about ourselves. That's not the point. That's not the point. And we do so looking forward to the light that is to come with Easter morning. But human beings, we have a hard time remembering, don't we? I have a hard time remembering where I put the remote 15 seconds after I set it down. Well, Good Friday is a chance for you to remember exactly what it cost for you to be freed from the ultimate effect of slavery. And so now we're going to take the fourth cup together in this Passover meal in communion. But before we do that, before we do that, I just want you to consider just a couple things. See, I want you you consider, if you've placed your hope in Jesus, well, I want you to consider what life would be like without it. See, Dan gave you an assignment this last Sunday. It was to consider what life, how life has changed since following Jesus. Well, I want you to kind of, now that you've done that for a week, I want you to think, what would it be like if you didn't have hope? What was it like then, left in this world in a place of slavery to the powers, left without hope in the world? What could that have ended up looking like? Yes, both here, but forever. Consider what Jesus had to give to that future. It doesn't have to be yours anymore. See, you are now free. Praise God. But consider what could have been. Now, if you grew up into the church and you don't remember what life was like before you uh, received Jesus in your life, and you don't remember what life was like before knowing and trusting Jesus, I want to say praise God for you, first off. Praise God for you. Uh, That's a gift. It's a gift probably from your family. That's amazing. It's a gift from God. But just like the Maror was a prompt for the Passover meal participants to consider what life was like to live in slavery, I want you now to consider what life could have been. And then I want you to thank God. Praise him for that gift you've been given at a real young age. Or maybe for you, maybe you're realizing now, I don't know if I've ever experienced that kind of freedom. You know, when I started looking back at what Dan asked me to do this week, and he said, well, what's different about my life from when I was a non-Christian to when I am now a Christian? I, I don't know if I could tell you any differences. and You know, if that's you right now, or maybe you've just never really even thought to, to enter into this relationship with Jesus and you've never received this amazing free gift. I want you to know something. I want you to know, Jesus, he does not hate you. He is not disappointed in you. He's not sitting there judging like, man, Like I just I can't, I'm so, I only could give him so many tries. I could only give her enough times. Like, it's not, no, that's not happening. I want you to know that he has given everything Everything, so that he could walk beside you. He, he wants you and he holds his arms open and, and he weeps with joy for you and he says, I, w- I want to know you. And he looks at this cross and he says, I remember, I remember what that felt like and every whip of that whip or every, every strike of that whip, every hammering of those nails, all the insults and all that mockery, it was worth it. It was worth it. Because you are worth it. See, I love you. My, na- my hands were hammered at their sides wide open. And when I came off the cross, they stayed at that wide open because I want you to come back to me. I want to know you. I hold these arms open because I love you and I care for you and I want you to come to be with me. But you know what? If you're going to be with me, you got to be with me. You got to let me walk with you. Because I trust me, I, I know what's best for you and I want, I want what's best for you. I'm not doing this to take away your fun, I promise. I'm doing this because I love you and I care about you and I want what's best for you. So come with me, come with me. Give up your allegiance to the powers of these worlds and come be with me. How do you do that? You gotta ask. Remember, what was the sign of true intelligence? It was asking, right? And Jesus says, ask Ask, and I will give. I have the kingdom of God at my fingertips, and I want to give it to you. I have all this gift, and I have blessings. I want to give them to you. I want you to be here, but you got to ask. You got to be part of this. So I ask you, if you've never done that, start today. Ask. Let God enter into your life. Receive and embrace true freedom in Christ. The last thing I want you to consider is, is maybe, maybe you're like, okay, yeah, I did that. I, I love Jesus. I'm, I'm there. But just like the Israelites, maybe you find yourself wandering and, and getting bored and wanting to go back into the slavery of sin. And though we have been set free, sometimes we start to forget who we really are. We forget what freedom actually is. And we start to allow us to slip back into the yoke of slavery, to slip back into old sinful habits. Well, this might be a chance for you to repent. And I'm not saying so, so that you do start feeling bad and feeling guilty about how terrible you are. No, no, no. Remember, that's not the point. The point is you can find freedom in Christ who welcomes you back with open arms. Remember what Jesus says. He says, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So he's saying, I don't care if you think you're awesome. I don't care if you think you're, if you're the worst person in the world. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. But a slave has no permanent place in the family. But a son, mm, a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free you will be free indeed. That means if you are a child of God, if you've received Jesus and you said, I want to walk with you, yes, you may be struggling right now, but remember who you really are because if your son sets you free, you are free indeed. So embrace who you are as a free son or daughter. Embrace freedom in Christ. See, it's the same God who met you in slavery is the same God who is walking with you today. He hasn't changed He's the same God when you first met him as he is right now, the same God who was at camp, the same God who was at the retreat, the same God you met at No Regrets, the same God you met at that, at that conference you attended. He's the same God who met you when you were first a child or a teenager or a college student or maybe last year. He's the same God then as he is now. He's the same God at the Passover as he is the same God at the Last Supper. He's never changed. He loves you he loves you and he has set you free based on the payment of his great love. And Jesus tells us, this is worth remembering. Remember what it cost. He gave everything to rescue you, to bring you in as the family. And remember his promise that he will always be with you even to the end of the age. And remember who you are, a free Child of God, and remember what it cost—everything. That's the point of Good Friday. And so I want you to reflect tonight as we as we continue on, and we move. We're going to move now into the uh, into communion. But just remember, not to feel bad. That's not the point. Remember, but to embrace the freedom that was reflected at the Last Supper. So with that, let's pray. And then we'll take the bread and the cup together. Father God, um, I thank you. I thank you for this time. We are thankful for the bread. We are thankful for the cup. I pray that you would use this right now as, uh, to remind us of your incredible sacrifice and your increasingly incredible promise to free us and to walk with us daily. God, we thank you so much. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. Now, here at Crossview Church, uh, we practice what we call open communion. And what this means is that um, you don't have to be a member here at Crossview Church. Remember, it's, it's all about him. It's not about Crossview Church. It's, it's about Jesus. And so, uh, you, you're welcome. if you call yourself uh, a follower of Jesus, and maybe you wanted to be at that table with him uh, at the Last Supper, God. I, I would I would ask that you take this supper with us. And parents, um, if you guys are the spiritual leaders of your household, so uh, we would say that you uh, get to make that decision for your children. So if you have children here, young ones, uh, and you think they have made that decision, uh, feel free to partake with them as well. Now, the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread. Oops, I'm so And when he had given thanks, he said... This is my body, which has been broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Why don't you guys stand up with me and we continue on continue on in worship?